Hey, my name is Jane Chai and I'm a co-host of the Pulse Podcast by Wharton Digital Health. In this episode, I sat down with Dan Nett, the VP of Transformational Clinical Product at CVS Health. Prior to this, Dan served as the Vice President of Health Strategy and Innovation Medical Affairs at CVS Health. He joined Aetna in 2016 and has led a series of enterprise-wide strategic initiatives. Dan graduated with honors from Dartmouth College and received a joint MD, MBA from Weill Cornell Medical College and the Johnson Graduate School of Management, where he was a recipient of the Lee Family Scholarship. He also is an associate clinical professor at Mount Sinai West in New York City, where he still sees patients. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we have a tradition on the podcast to ask for our guests what you wanted to be when you grew up. So did you always want to be a doctor growing up? No, actually, I think my earliest recollection of my career aspirations were actually being a farmer. I'm not exactly sure what attracted me to being a farmer, but no, actually, I guess I was always interested in science and, and you know, certainly helping people and doing something that's net positive for society. I think my first job actually was uh, being an emergency medical technician. So I worked on my local ambulance as well as Jones Beach State Park in New York. And I think that was the first exposure to clinical care. I loved it. It was so much fun. But I think from there, my interest in, in medicine only grew. That makes sense. Thanks for sharing that background. What led you to go from being a practitioner of medicine to a more sort of corporate enterprise role where you're also overseeing something from a business angle? Yeah, so I have a large scope of interest, and I was always attracted to both the role of, of what business can do on society, and then so the intersection of both medicine and helping people on a one-to-one basis, but also more broadly through the lens of a, of a business or a large company was particularly attractive to me. So I went to Wild Cornell Medical School, as you mentioned earlier, and what I liked about that med school was the opportunity to get a, an MBA as well. And so I did one year up at the Johnson School of Business and then completed medical school and, and continued onward in my residency in internal medicine. And what led you to your previous job at Aetna? And can you describe a bit about your role? Sure. So believe it or not, I've received outreach through LinkedIn through a recruiter about being a chief of staff to our chief medical officer at Aetna, uh, Dr. Hal Paz. I met with him and he really just sold me on a really exciting vision around what Edna was trying to accomplish around improving the health of, of our members and addressing health holistically. So I jumped on board and I've been at the company ever since. And it's been a really exciting career trajectory. That's really interesting. What were you doing at Edna in terms of helping with that vision around bringing better healthcare outcomes to patients? Was it sort of similar to this more clinical product flow that you have now or what was sort of the overall mandate? Yeah. So a few years ago, Hal, one of Hal's priority, priorities was uh, to look at impacting the opioid crisis, which unfortunately continues to this day. So he tapped me to think about the strategy and execute on our strategy of getting, first of all, I think, developing a strategy to address the opioid crisis holistically. So thinking about overprescribing of opioids, thinking about getting people who've overdosed the treatment they deserve and finding ways where Edna can bring their resources and capabilities of people struggling with addiction. So I worked uh, on that strategy with a number of stakeholders across the enterprise for a few years. Found it really rewarding to be able to take advantage of this the massive scope Aetna has of providing health benefits to over 20 million people across the country. I want to dig deeper here about the opportunities for Aetna. So 
it's old news today, but back in 2018, the CVS Aetna merger was one of the biggest deals in history in the healthcare industry, creating a company at the time that was valued at $69 billion. Can you help our listeners understand a bit about the context of that deal and potentially how that ultimately serves member interests? Yeah, for sure. I'll just say from my perspective at Aetna, you know, we're, we are aspiring to improve people's health, but one of the, I think the, the challenges was that sort of the final mile of healthcare and healthcare delivery. So what's really exciting about bringing those two companies together is that CVS has about 10,000 pharmacies across the country. It's estimated about 85% of Americans live around about at most 10 miles away from a CVS. Also, we have about a thousand minute clinics. So those are retail health clinics that provide accessible care in the community. So bringing together the local uh, presence and trust of a CDS with the national footprint of a payer like Aetna is I think, a really powerful combination, right? So Aetna is responsible for uh, managing a population's health and making sure they get the right care at the right time and improving the overall health of that population. And, and CVS brings to bear the actual ability to deliver cost-effective evidence-based care in the community. So that's the rationale. And the, you know, the vision is we're striving to be the most consumer-centric health company through data analytics, through our clinical capabilities, through our population health uh, capabilities. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, that's fascinating. How has your role changed as you've moved from being Aetna centric to this joint partnership between Anna and CBS, especially as you think about some of the elements you're describing now around patient centricity and really leveraging the knowledge from a CBS perspective with Aetna. So I think it's been really exciting to lead clinical product and our mandate is to pull in resources and assets from across the combined entity and roll them up into really innovative new products that improve people's health. So a perfect example is our Transform Diabetes Care Program. And so this is a program that helps clients and customers better address the unique needs of people and employees with diabetes. So perfect example would be our Transform Diabetes Program. So if you have, for example, uh, somebody with diabetes that lives in the neighborhood of a health hub, they he or she will receive an outbound call from a pharmacist or care concierge inviting them in to the, the health hub. And when that individual comes into the health hub, the care concierge will greet them and through data analytics, understand what care gaps or next best clinical action is required to help that person better manage their diabetes. So for example, if it's an annual screening for diabetic retinopathy, the care concierge will uh, guide that individual to the back of the health hub and introduce them to the minute clinic where he or she can get a diabetic retinopathy screen. And so, as you probably know, diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of blindness in adults in the United States because it's a preventable complication of diabetes. And if caught early, it can be treated effectively. But unfortunately, in many parts of the country, people with diabetes just aren't getting the screenings on an annual basis. So we're trying to fill that gap and get people the care they need. So that's sort of one example where before the acquisition, we could have a care manager call that individual diabetes and let them know that they need to get their eyes screened. Now with the combination of the two companies, we can actually help them close that critical gap in care. So that's one example. I think another cool example is around how we can use our pharmacists and you know get them to practice at the top of their license and unlock that a lot of value in that relationship between a pharmacist and a patient. 
So our pharmacy panel program, our pharmacists in select stores, they receive through our IT infrastructure an individualized care gap that they can help deliver when a patient comes and picks the prescription and that pharmacists can provide individualized counseling and coaching. And so that's a program where we're pulling the pharmacists into the care team for the people we're serving. So another really, I think, impactful and exciting initiative. Thanks for sharing all of that. I know, especially as people think about how they adjudicate their care, a personal relationship with the pharmacist that they are familiar with, that they recognize that are in their communities, which you get with the CVS footprint Mm -hmm. is definitely a critical component to patient adherence, to patient care, et cetera. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think you could have achieved some of these synergies by a joint partnership or something that's not as finite as an ownership or merger model? Yeah, I mean, I would just say from where I sit in the company, like there's just a lot of collaboration and partnership across lines of business, sharing data when appropriate, collaborating from different points of view. So for example, our partners in Aetna Medicare, they really understand the pain points of Medicare Advantage members and can co-develop products and solutions for that really important population that needs a lot of help. So I think like bringing those teams under one roof, under one aspirational vision is definitely bearing a lot of fruit. So I can't speak to other operating models, but the fact we're all working for the betterment of uh, customers, I think is pointing us in the right direction. That makes sense. From all of these positive synergies and collaborations coming out of mergers, do you see this as a budding industry trend where we're going to see more potential mergers between payers as well as retailers, especially retailers with the pharmacy component in the CVS case? Yeah, I'm really just sort of focused on the work we're doing at CVS, but I will say that the ability to take uh, the vast repository that a health insurer like Aetna has and then apply advanced analytics through machine learning and other sort of advanced AI technologies to provide actionable uh, next best actions is really powerful. And I think the retail presence we have at CVS is unparalleled and being able to serve that up and make sure that the experience is patient-centric is is a really uh, potent combination. I want to pivot now to focusing on your team and your mandate and Mm -hmm. your overall strategy and vision. At a high level, can you walk our listeners through the overall vision for the clinical product team that you manage? What's your strategy and what are the top things that you're thinking about with your teams? Yeah, absolutely. So the approach I took with the team is to think about just broadly speaking, population health. And if you look at any population, there's a small percentage of folks that are really struggling with serious illness like cancer and heart failure. And so we have a team thinking just about those folks and how do we best address those unmet needs, which are many. And then looking at the sort of the second population of that have unique health needs are folks with chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension. So we have another team looking at that, right? So that's our diabetes program. That's our hypertension program. That's our nutrition program. And so that's a team that's really laser focused on addressing the needs of six and 10 American adults that are living with one or more medical conditions. And then the other population are just folks just generally trying to maintain their health, for example, pregnancy. So we have a team looking at well-being, women's health, and maternity in that sort of area. So the way I've developed the team is 
you know, setting up people focused really intently on understanding unmet needs of a particular population with unique circumstances and then developing products, leveraging those CVS assets. So that's sort of you know, how we've landed. We certainly can't do it alone. Like, as I mentioned earlier, we have it's a big company, almost 300,000 employees. And so tapping into the collective insights of the broader organization, I think is really critical to optimal product ideation and development. To that point around leveraging knowledge from various parts of the organization, what does the functional component of your team look like? Is it mostly clinical or do you also have more cross-functional teams like folks who are more savvy on the business side or on the consumer engagement side? Like, can you walk us through just what that team makeup looks like? Yeah, it's all of the above. So Dr. Ken Snow is an endocrinologist. We have a number of pharmacists on our team, nurses, and then experienced product developers. We are sort of setting up a team just to think about consumer engagement and how do we get more insights from our end users. So we're thinking about novel ways to engage with people, using analytics, using more engaging marketing techniques, and then also just getting more and more feedback from the end users. I mean, we're aspiring to really be as a consumer-centric company as we can be, and you can only do that with ongoing feedback and dialogue with with our end users. So we have a team being uh, stood up there as well. I also think like there's so many insights we can get from our pharmacists, the 25,000 pharmacists across the 10,000 or so pharmacies. So making sure we get feedback from them on how are the programs working? What are some unaddressed needs of our customers? So that's another important data stream um, that informs our work. Do you see a trade-off at all between making sure that your products are specific or specialized, localized Mm -hmm. to individual communities, especially taking into consideration how vast the CVS real estate footprint is and how it's in many rural areas that may not have as much access to traditional forms of care versus Mm -hmm. scaling. So taking a solution and blasting it across a more national scale. Yeah, I think the answer there is applied analytics. So for example, the diabetes program I told you about, I, I, I gave you a snapshot of somebody who lives in the catchment area of a health hub, right? But what do you do for the folks that are not in health hubs? Then we can have a pharmacist do an outbound call. What if they don't fill prescriptions at CVS? Then we would have a diabetes nurse educated to a telephonic outbound as well as a mailer. So I think using analytics to really drill down on user-specific data is really important. And I think as we continue to build on the analytics, understanding which what means of communication is, is more desirable is going to be important. So whether it be, you know, through SMS, texting, or telephonic through the digital app, I think we're continuing to build up those capabilities so we can truly meet people where they are. That's great. I want to probe a bit deeper on digital that you just mentioned. So digital is something that has been around in healthcare, but since COVID-19 has amplified in terms of its adoption and familiarity with consumers, how are you and the team thinking about digital specifically? Is that one of the priorities for the group or ways that you think you can better engage with consumers or is it evolved as an ongoing process and has always been sort of part of your suite of products or services you're thinking about as you design clinical products? Yeah, it's definitely our view is it's a, a critically important way to communicate with a certain subset of individuals. We aspire and we're working hard to meet people wherever they are in their journey. So the way we're thinking about it is interacting people through the hand. So through a smartphone, whether it be telephonically or through an app or through a website, 
for our hubs and our brick and mortar presence. Like the, what we're seeing is that we see a lot of engagement with our Medicare Advantage members through brick and mortar, through our retail settings. And just like uh, virtual, more and more engagement through homes. So we, for example, we have Quorum, which is America's second largest home infusion company. They, we have the ability to be invited to people's homes, help people manage serious illness, requiring infusions. And we had a pilot during COVID where Quorum was involved in helping people get a treatment for COVID-19 and the safety of their own home. So we can really meet people where they are. And I think to your point, COVID has accelerated market adoption and access to virtual care and digital assets. But at the same time, there are limitations to virtual only, right? Can't testing, for example, the uh, reassuring touch of a clinician and a physical examination, uh, certainly imaging procedures, it can't be done through a phone. So certainly there's will always be a role for brick and mortar. That makes sense. Is Quorum an entity that CVS Aetna owns or is that a oh. JV partnership? No, Quorum is, um, a, is a fully owned subsidiary Got of it. CVS. Yeah. So for example, I still work at the hospital. I will occasionally bump into a quorum nurse and the quorum team, what they do is they help prepare patients for safe discharges home. And so, for example, instead of a patient having to stay two weeks for an IV infusion of antibiotics, we can safely send people home and resume antibiotics through a PICC line, which is a perfectly inserted central catheter for the rest of the course of treatment. So definitely like that's a great proof point about how CVS is already in the home and how we plan on sending our assets. How do you think about partnerships in that lens when you're designing clinical products mm-hmm. versus acquisition? So like in the case of Quorum, it seems like a great fit in terms of mm-hmm. helping address a gap that potentially CVS or Edna doesn't currently have the capabilities to do so. But when do you decide to build those capabilities in-house by leveraging some of your existing assets versus potentially acquiring or doing a different type of partnership? Yeah, so this is like sort of the business strategy 101 part of the podcast. I think it's all about how does any company think about build versus buy? And just I would say you want to build capabilities that are core to your business, right? You don't really want to partner per se. And then also build. So that's build versus partner, and then build versus buy. You know, it's a, there's a speed to market component. There's also like, is that is the acquisition target? Do they have like some sort of secret sauce that you can't generate or develop yourself? So those are the sort of trade-offs that I think business leaders always have to juggle. So speed to market, is this a generic capability you can build versus something proprietary? Is it in your core sort of expertise or not? So like, for example, in terms of like partnering, like we work closely with a company called Unite Us. And what they do is they just focus on curating social determinants health any given community. So that's really just like a lot of hard work and building relationships in the community. And so we've teamed up with them to help our patients at CVS or at Edna get access to social determinants of health. So I think that's like a, a nice example of letting that team do what they do really well, and we can partner. With that context in mind, where do you see the biggest gaps in CVS's clinical products today, as well as opportunities? It's a good question. I think, so if you take a step back, what COVID did was really accelerate market adoption around virtual care. And so that's an area where we already have virtual care capabilities, but how do we build those out even more and make them more robust? And so that's an area where we continue to invest. I think that's one area. And I think also just continuing to put more clinical 
assets within the health hub. So these health hubs, as I mentioned earlier, are built out CVS uh, retail stores with a bigger focus on health and wellness. So continue to put more and more services in those communities. So we're working on that. For example, we have a behavioral health pilot in a number of states already. And so the idea there is that a lot of communities don't have access to behavioral health services, right? Or it's just really challenging for people to, to navigate the system and, and figure out how to get an in-network provider to treat depression and anxiety. So we saw a gap in the marketplace and we're building out our behavioral health assets. So we have licensed clinical social workers in a number of our health hubs to provide that front door to behavioral health. So yeah, I mean, just tying that to COVID too, right? So COVID obviously was a, a pandemic as it relates to infectious disease, but it's also caused a, a second wave of human suffering as it relates to mental health. So the work we're doing in behavioral health is, is more timely now than ever. Are you concerned at all about other startups that have rode this sort of wave of an injection of a lot of venture capital into healthcare, specifically in some of these areas that you've identified as potential gaps or opportunity areas for CVS or on virtual care, on behavioral care, especially for those startups that actually are operating outside of a traditional payer network. So for example, HIMSS and HERS not actually even taking insurance and potentially taking some services from members that you may otherwise want to engage. Well, that's a great question. I would say this, as a physician, I look at the overall state of health in the United States and unfortunately life expectancies declined three or four years now. So people coming in with new ideas and, and trying to inject some energy and, and innovation into the healthcare system, I think is, is terrific. I am very excited about the strategy we're doing at CVS. We're trying to be as focused on our consumers' needs as possible. So I think we have an exciting strategy and we're going to execute on it. So, you know, I invite other entrants into the space because we certainly need new ideas and new energy. And I'm confident that CVS is going to be able to bring a lot of benefit to our customers and communities we serve. Absolutely. I'm going to pivot a bit now to think about an outlook ahead, especially considering some of the pieces we've talked about before around COVID, but also around shifting political dynamics of different types of regulations that were temporarily authorized during COVID and what trends you think will persist and which won't. So given that context, what do you think is going to be some of the lasting trends that will continue to persist, thinking specifically from the clinical product side? So for example, some of the temporary authorizations Mm -hmm. that make it easier for certain products or services to be applied across state lines where Traditionally, regulations have been more strict between cross-state services or products. I'll just say, like, I think that a lot of these changes and regulations have changed consumer behavior. So, like, rapid adoption and embracement of telehealth, both from the consumer patient perspective, but also providers are becoming a lot more comfortable around that. So, the interest and excitement around telehealth, I think, will persist. I don't know what's going to happen in terms of regulatory perspective, but I'd say like that that has that will continue. I also think the increasing role of the home as it relates to the providing clinical care is something that was accelerated with COVID, and I don't think that will change. I know CMS has made some changes around, for example, hospital at home. So I think it's up to the government to figure out what's working and what's not. But I think once you have a widespread change in consumer behavior, I don't see that sort of going backward. Do you see the role of payers also following a similar view where, for example, now there's pay parity for virtual visits as well as in-person visits? 
for payers to maintain that parity for services, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's telemedicine, that traditionally payers haven't been reimbursing at similar rates, even post COVID? And do you think that's ultimately beneficial for the consumer? Well, I would just say like, uh, you know, I'm not on the, that sort of part of the, the company, but I'd say like payers are always interested in getting people the right care at the right time, at the right place, number one. And also, is there a patient safety perspective and a quality of care perspective? So I think if you think about all these new changes in care delivery, how does that stack up against that very logical framework payers look at and then you'll get your answer. Yeah, that makes sense. Looking ahead to some of the changes in regulations, where do you think are some of the more near-term areas of high impact for consumers? Thinking from a clinical side, because healthcare is such a heavily regulated industry, do you see any policy changes or shifts in the overall political framework that would potentially accelerate some of these benefits to the consumer? Yeah, I think maybe just the view of like what is healthcare. I think that aperture is widening in a really exciting way. So, you know, if you think about what constitutes health, certainly it's medical care, but it's also nutrition, it's exercise, it's being living in a safe community, it's employment. So I think it's social connectedness and purpose. And, and so I think CMS, it's more and more adopting that view. So you're seeing more and more benefits that maybe traditionally haven't been seen as medical being reimbursed for, for Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. So I think that's a really encouraging trend. So like the idea that, you know, nutrition and transportation will be, may be covered in certain Medicare Advantage plans, I think is really encouraging, right? To get people the right healthful food and connection with society. So those are really encouraging trends that I think certainly accelerate with COVID and will continue to head in that direction. That's really interesting. Touching upon what you just mentioned around a more holistic view to overall health from nutrition to exercise to transportation and even mental health. How does CVS and your team think about where the responsibility or role of CVS starts and ends in that patient's holistic care journey? Obviously understanding that there are many factors like social determinants of health that almost a priori mm-hmm. dictate certain health outcomes of patients, but also thinking about even the longitudinal lifespan of a patient and how CVS plays a role in impacting Mm -hmm. along that spectrum. Yeah. So our perspective is that we're part of a broader complex ecosystem of care. We cannot do everything. We can help. We certainly help coordinate care. We can deliver care when appropriate. We can pay for appropriate care. But I think our perspective is that we're partnering with patients, providers in the community to make sure we're supporting them and that we're addressing gaps of care that might have fallen through the cracks. We're helping coordinate care. We're trying to address some of those social determinants help with partnerships like Unitas. I think one sort of important call out is the role of data interoperability. So we use Epic to document our care encounters with patients and that's shared with the provider. Our pharmacists send information on, on medication through Arts Connect, and our care managers also are we're actually migrating them onto Epic as well. So we see ourselves as a part of a broader complex web of care delivery. What we're trying to do is simplify, make access more convenient and patient-centered, and then, frankly, affordability. How can we drive down the cost of healthcare uh, and deliver high-value care? One piece that's related to that that's very top of mind for a lot of people in the U.S. and all around the world today is around the COVID vaccine and the potential Mm -hmm. role for CVS Aetna to play in administering that. Can you speak a bit about 
how you're envisioning that rollout and what CBS and, and us role will be in shaping that. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying we were very early to roll out COVID-19 testing about a year ago, right? We provided millions of, of tests to identify people who've been infected with COVID-19 across the country. So we also have a program called Return Ready, where we provide testing for for employers, both large and small, for example, airlines, banks, various other you know manufacturing plants as well. So we've been providing testing for substantial since the beginning of the, the epidemic. We're also really engaged in COVID-19 vaccines. So we're participating in the federal retail pharmacy program, and we're providing vaccines in over 1,300 stores across 35 states and Puerto Rico. So that's really, I think, a, a great example of how we're playing an important role, providing access to vaccines. I'm also particularly proud to say that more than 50% of our testing sites are in underserved communities as per the CDC, the Social Vulnerability Index. So making sure we're, not, we're trying to narrow healthcare disparities among disadvantaged communities. And so I think we were one of two pharmacies that were involved vaccinating uh, residents of long-term care facilities. So we've administered over 4.5 million vaccines through the Pharmacy Partnership for Long-Term Care Program. So really involved in trying to expand access to vaccines and get the country back up and running. Yeah, I want to touch upon this point you brought around health equities and CVS's role in addressing them. COVID has, of course, exacerbated something that we have experienced in the U.S. as something that's been systemic and historical around gaps to care and gaps to quality and accessibility and affordability. Beyond offering the COVID vaccine in communities that are underserved, are there other ways that CBS and us thinking about how to address and reduce some of these health inequities? Uh, yeah, so I'll say with COVID-19, I think the silver lining, I guess, I don't know if you can even say that around COVID-19, is it's cast a, a glaring light, obvious healthcare disparities uh, in communities of color. Number one and number two is hopefully destigmatizing behavioral health conditions, right? So people are more comfortable to talk about it and then get care. So, I mean, we've been working tirelessly for years now to address racial and ethnic healthcare disparities. I think one of our most recent initiatives that's unrelated to COVID-19, although I could talk about a number of other initiatives we have addressing health equity in that space as well, is around maternal mortality. So we launched a program that predates COVID-19, frankly, that provides outreach to pregnant women who are at higher risk for preeclampsia and provide them education and tools to help facilitate a conversation with the OBGYN as it relates to screening for preeclampsia, which is a condition that disproportionately affects African-American women. And we also provided CVS a low-dose aspirin, which is, has been proven to reduce the risk of developing preeclampsia. And so this is a program that's aimed in particular to our African-American expecting moms. And so this is, I think, an example of how we're using data analytics, clinical insights, and really targeting our messages for particular communities at our underserved or struggling to get the care they deserve. I'm curious how you're thinking about that on the behavioral health side. So I know we talked about behavioral health as one of these priorities from a clinical product perspective for CVS. What have you found to be successful? Because I know behavioral health is one of those terms that gets tossed around a lot, but it is a very tricky and very complex set of conditions to target and really address effectively, especially over a sustained period of time. So what are some of the ways that CVS has been tackling this 
especially thinking about leveraging some of the data analytics as well as just the breadth of the membership. That when I was at working on the opioid crisis with Aetna, we launched a program called Guardian Angel. And this program identifies people who claims data analytics who have Aetna members who have had a, a drug overdose. And we have hired specially trained clinicians who have had decades of experience counseling and supporting people with substance use disorder and behavioral health conditions to perform outreach to these folks and counsel them through motivational interviewing and coaching and getting them to community, community-based community treatment options, right? So I'll be making sure people with opioid use disorder are getting evidence-based medication-assisted therapy and counseling and longitudinal support. So I think the theme there is also using analytics, but bringing the right clinical assets uh, into bear and spending the time and, and effort to connect with these people and get them care. So I think a real prime example of the good we can do and we're doing at the company and the program is, is still running and we've supported over a thousand individuals on their path to recovery. I would think too, with something like that, some of the inputs that you're able to garner from the ground. So a lot of this real-time feedback would be helpful mm-hmm. in terms of understanding the efficacy of these interventions. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that you're thinking a lot about how to leverage pharmacists to do this since they're already dispersed so widely across the nation. Is that one of the ways that you're getting feedback or how do you think about leveraging just the real estate footprint to constantly improve the clinical outcomes of some of these interventions, especially those that are earlier stage? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, our pharmacy panels program, every time a pharmacist has a conversation with somebody picking up their medication and the pharmacist has served up one of these you know, nudges, for example, this patient needs a screening for colonoscopy or needs to be on another medication. After that conversation, the pharmacist actually puts information into the system through a soap note, which is subjective objective assessment plan, fills that information out, and then that's sent to the team to interpret it and seek insights to continually improve the program. So that's an example where a very large company, but we actually can get insights from on the ground across the country. And then also from a minute clinic perspective, all the work they do is captured in Epic. And so that information can be mined for process improvement and making sure the care we're delivering our patients is, you know, individualized and on on point. Makes sense. On the Minute Clinics, do you see an expansion of the services that will continue to be offered there as you think about how retailers are thinking about leveraging their access, real estate Mm -hmm. space? And if so, what are the services or products that you would think to prioritize in some of these Minute Clinics? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our vision is to partner with providers in the community to help them provide the most robust care possible. So in that vein, there's some services that are not offered or from a, a primary care provider. So like nutrition services, for example, is, a, is definitely a capability that I think has been really, would be really helpful for people with chronic conditions, right? You know, remember diabetes, hypertension are, are fundamentally issues with diet. So, you know, we're offering nutrition counseling in the health hubs. So that's one example where we can provide wraparound services for the provider. Also, I think for some folks, you know, our ability to just manage basic chronic conditions, like screening people for hypertension, starting them on an antihypertensive or getting somebody on diabetes onto, for example, basal insulin is, is I think, a really value add service at the Minute Clinic. So 
we continue to build out our services roadmap to provide more comprehensive care for people with chronic conditions. Do you see traditional provider systems also starting to build out their own outpatient clinics, thinking that there could be some competition with, for example, CVS already has such a big real estate footprint and wanting to make sure that they're still capturing a bulk of the services that are being administered and potentially even more services that will be administered in the future at some of these clinics? Well, I like to say that you know, 50% of Americans haven't seen a primary care provider this past year. It's probably higher with COVID. So I think there's a huge dearth accessible primary care across the country. So now I can't comment on like what other systems are doing, but clearly there's a tremendous unmet need for high value, high quality primary care services. I think we can supplement that when needed. We can complement it if somebody prefers values that relationship with their primary care doctor. I think really the aspiration is just to meet people where they are on their health journey. What were some of the toughest challenges you faced as you were navigating your career? Healthcare is an incredibly complex, probably the most complex industry in the United States, just in terms of trying to understand patient journey, the flow of money, the responsibilities, the interconnected sort of players. So I think moving from like a clinician to somebody in more of a business role is drinking through a fire hose to try to understand the industry because it's very complex and confusing. So the ability to scale a very steep learning curve, I think, is really a challenge for anybody entering healthcare and see what roles are open. Great. Well, thank you so much for those remarks about the clinical product team at CVS and your broader vision about addressing health disparities and the gaps in care, especially around behavioral health. In this last section, I want to touch upon any personal leadership advice you have both personally and professionally for our listeners. To start off with more generally, how have you thought about navigating your career over time, especially as you thought about shifting your roles from being more of a clinician to somebody more on the business side? And what general advice do you have for our listeners on that point, many of whom are young professionals interested in working in the healthcare industry? This is when the interview gets hard. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding around. Yeah, I like to say, know thyself. So like, what things do you like to do and how do you like to spend your time, I think is a really valuable a North Star. So like, I like innovation, I like strategy. So I try, you know, when I think about opportunities, I try to get into roles that really cater to my interests and passions and try to avoid things I don't like to do. So I think that's one sort of example is like, know what you like to do and, and stay true to that. I think the other one is just being open-minded to opportunities. I didn't think when I graduated medical school, I'd be working for a a health insurer. And then like, I never thought I'd be working for like a pharmacy to this large integrated healthcare company, but I was open to opportunity as, it, as they afforded themselves. And, you know, I think that was really important to get to where I am now at a, at a role that I really like at a company I'm really proud to work at. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to like, subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was recorded on March 25th, 2021. Some of the numbers in this interview may have changed since then.